Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. We're another week closer to the end of the court's term as the justices continue to work their way through the cases that were argued this past year. You ready to get right to it, GC? I sure am. I'll start us off with the orders. The court requested that the government file a brief in the Harvard admissions case. Uh, That's the case alleging that Harvard's admission standards discriminate against Asian Americans. That the court solicited briefs in that case from the government might show that the justices are interested in the case, but it also means that a decision about whether the court will take the case will now be severely delayed. The government almost certainly won't file its brief until the court's next term has gotten underway. And moving on to opinions this week, we got two of the big ones. The Obamacare case, round three, and the Catholic Adoption Services case. Starting with the Affordable Care Act, this was uh, Texas versus California and California versus Texas. A 7-2 to two decision by Justice Breyer, joined by everyone except Justices Alito and Gorsuch. And the court held that none of the plaintiffs had standing to challenge the individual mandate. You'll probably recall that in NFIB versus Sibelius, the court said that the individual mandate, which requires you to buy health insurance or face financial penalties was constitutional only because it was a tax. Well, after that case, Congress reduced the penalties to $0, so it wasn't a tax anymore. So several states sued to challenge its constitutionality. Their claim amounted to an attack on the whole Affordable Care Act uh, because the mandate was its central component, they argued, and so uh, it couldn't be severed from the act. In other words, if the mandate goes, the whole thing goes with it. The court held, though, that because the mandate now has no penalties, it's unenforceable. It can't impose any harm on anyone. And some harm, of course, is necessary for you to have standing to sue. Now, the states advanced another argument for standing. They said, look, we suffer harm when people choose to comply with the mandate, even if they don't have to, uh, because that imposes administrative expenses on us, the states. This argument uh, is what the concurring and dissenting opinions uh, really focused on. Uh, So the courts rejected this argument because uh, they said those administrative expenses are uh, imposed on you by other provisions of the act, not by the mandate itself. Justice Alito dissented. He said, look, those provisions impose costs because of the mandate. They're inextricably linked. Thomas, in concurrence uh, with the majority, was sympathetic to that argument, but he said that because the states never raised that argument um, before in lower courts, it wasn't properly uh, before the court here. So having concluded that the states had standing, Alito would have continued to the merits, and he said, look, the mandate is clearly not constitutional because it's not a tax. We all know that. Uh, And it is so intertwined with much of the act that it simply can't be severed. So he would have struck down much of the Affordable Care Act. But at the end of the day, uh, the Affordable Care Act is here to stay. And that brings us to the Catholic Social Services case, Fulton. This was a unanimous judgment with several separate concurring opinions. But the court was unanimous that Philadelphia violated the First Amendment's free exercise clause. 
uh, when it rejected Catholic social services as a foster care provider unless it agreed to certify same-sex couples as foster parents in violation of its religious beliefs. Now, some background is really needed to understand what's going on with all of these concurring opinions, and it revolves around a case called Employment Division versus Smith. In that case, the court held that strict scrutiny, the highest level of judicial scrutiny of government actions, applies in free exercise cases only when the government fails to act in a neutral and generally applicable manner. The implication of that case, as Justice O'Connor noted in her separate opinion there, is that as long as the government is clever enough to discriminate against religious organizations in a neutral and generally applicable manner, it will likely get away with it. In this case, Philadelphia was not clever. The city's foster care contract said you cannot participate in the program unless you certify same-sex couples, but one and only one sole official has complete and unfettered discretion to issue exceptions to that rule, and he refused to give the Catholic Social Services one. Now, the court applied strict scrutiny here because giving one official unfettered discretion is not neutral and generally applicable. So it held that the city failed strict scrutiny because it could not show how granting Catholic social services an exception would do any harm. Now we get to the concurrences, and they all revolve around whether or not the court should have overruled Employment Division versus Smith. Justices Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Breyer noted that this case was not the right one to overrule Smith. Uh, Barrett and Kavanaugh went a step further, though, and they said, look, hypothetically, if we were considering whether we had to overrule Smith, we probably would. Justice Alito, joined by Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, wrote an absolute barn burner of an opinion, saying that Smith must be overruled and now. Today's opinion, he wrote, might as well be written on dissolving paper sold in magic shops. (laughs) The reason for that, he said, is because the city need only eliminate the provision allowing one official to grant exceptions to make the rule generally applicable. Catholic social services would still be denied the ability to participate in the program. It would immediately sue again. But under Employment Division versus Smith, it would not get strict scrutiny. The rest of his 77-page opinion continues to outline Smith's many flaws. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Thomas and Alito, also concurred, saying that Smith should be overruled now. He outlined Smith's failings, that it misapplied precedent, violates the Constitution's text, and is totally unworkable in practice and said that sidestepping the decision to overrule it today, quote, only guarantees that this litigation is just getting started. Zach, next up, tell us about Sanchez versus Mayorkas. In another unanimous opinion by the court, uh, this one by Justice Kagan, the court held that if an alien enters the country illegally, but then gets temporary protected status, he cannot transform that temporary protected status into permanent status because the law that usually allows someone to do that requires lawful admission. Put differently, getting temporary status after illegally entering the country does not cure illegal entry. This was another in a growing list of unanimous victories for a straightforward application of the law's text. Next up was Greer v. United States. Uh, This was an almost unanimous opinion by Justice Kavanaugh. Justice Sotomayor only partially joined it. The court held that two criminal defendants were not entitled to plain error relief for their unpreserved rehafe claims. What's a rehafe claim? 
Well, in 2019, the court held that when prosecuting felon in possession of firearms cases, the government must prove both that the defendant knew he possessed a firearm and that he knew he was a felon when he possessed the firearm. Both of the defendants in this case were convicted of being felons in possession before the Supreme Court issued that decision, and they had not preserved any mens rea claims, that is, any claims related to the state of mind the government must prove uh, before the trial court. Thus, they were entitled to only plain error review of their claims, and the court said under that standard they did not qualify for any relief. Justice Sotomayor agreed with the court as to the outcome for one defendant, but she would have remanded the other defendant's case back to the lower courts for them to make a case-specific determination about whether he would qualify for relief. We also got Terry versus United States. This case was also mostly unanimous. Justice Sotomayor, again, on her own, concurring in the judgment, but just not joining one part of the opinion. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote for the court holding that people convicted of certain types of drug crimes, those involving an unspecified amount of either crack or powder cocaine, were not eligible to have their sentences reduced under the First Step Act, a law that made retroactive some sentence reductions to reduce that disparity between crack and powder cocaine sentences. The plain language of the statute did not apply to these kinds of crimes, these low-level unspecified amount crimes. Uh, because they didn't have mandatory minimum sentences. We can chalk this one up again to another unanimous win for textualism. And our final opinion in this very busy week was Nestle versus Doe. In this 8-1 decision by Justice Thomas, the court held that extraterritorial application of the Alien Tort Statute, which permits aliens to sue for torts committed by American citizens or companies, requires more than mere corporate presence of a defendant in the United States. Here, the plaintiffs allege that they had been sold as child slaves to a cocoa farm in Ivory Coast and that Nestle bought cocoa from those farms, so they sued Nestle for aiding and abetting their slavery. But Nestle did nothing more than make the decision to buy cocoa from those farms, and that decision was made in the U.S. That, the court held, is simply not enough under the statute to sue Nestle. Next up is our interview for this week with Supreme Court advocate Greg Garr. We're pleased to be joined today by Supreme Court advocate Greg Garr. Greg currently serves as a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Latham & Watkins and is the global chair of the firm's Supreme Court and appellate practice. Prior to joining Latham & Watkins, he served as the 44th Solicitor General of the United States. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, Zach. It's great to be here. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm uh, very excited to to talk with you. And so to start out with, uh, what made you want to be a lawyer, Greg? I think it was my interest primarily in, in government and history, and that sort of led me naturally to D.C. and to the study of law, although I, I will say that my parents from a very young age said I was good at arguing with them, so that was <laughs> one of the things that may have planted the seed. And where did you go to law school, Greg? So I went to George Washington uh, University Law School, um, which was a fantastic, great experience, great to be here in D.C. and, and you know, opened a lot of doors for me. Sure. And now after law school, you clerked for Judge Anthony Sirica on the Third Circuit. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what it was like to clerk for Judge Sirica? It was great. Um, You know, Judge Sirica um, had served as a district court judge and been on the Court of Appeals for several years. So he was a well-experienced judge. 
and approached judging in the you know truest sense of taking each case on its own, trying to get to the correct resolution. And the Third Circuit has a very sort of um, varied docket in the sense of cases all over the map. So it was a great experience to, to be exposed to different sorts of cases uh, and was a great year. And I learned a great deal from Judge Sirica. Do you have any special memories? Or are there any particular cases that stand out to you from your, your time clerking? You know, I wouldn't say that there was a particular case, although I do remember that this was during the Haitian refugee crisis. And Judge Starr, who was Solicitor General at the time, came to the Third Circuit and argued before the, the court. So that, mm. that was a great thrill and the first time I had seen a SG in action. So I, I, I certainly remember that. But on the whole, it was just a, a, a great experience um, with the, our co-clerks and the judge and everything. Great. And I'm, I'm just curious, was Judge Anthony Sirica, your judge, was he related to Judge John Sirica, who is the uh, district court judge who ordered President Nixon to turn over the uh, White House tapes and who actually presided over the trial of the Watergate burglars? Right. So that's a question I, I get, and I'm sure he gets a lot. And <laughs> he, he's not. There, there's actually one more C in his name than the than the Sirica who presided over the Watergate tape. Got it. Got it. Case. Yeah. Now, after you clerked uh, for Judge Sirica on the Third Circuit, you went on to clerk for Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Uh, what was that experience like? That was phenomenal. I mean, I, I think, you know, just being a fly on the wall at the Supreme Court would make for a, you know, uh, unforgettable year, but but to be clerking for Chief Justice Rehnquist was I mean, such a great experience. I mean, he had, he had sort of a, a stern demeanor on the bench, but in sure. person he was uh, low key, had a great sense of humor. Um, you know, I, I, I think the law clerks amused him as, as much as anything. He could do all the work on his own, but but it was a great learning experience. I mean, one of the things I really learned from Chief Justice Rehnquist is to not let uh, disagreements with others about mm. legal positions um, get personal. I mean, Judge Chief Justice Rehnquist was, was um, you know, really a, a true role model at that. He didn't let it mm. affect him or his relationships personally. But the other interesting thing about the clerkship with Chief Justice Rehnquist is, you know, one of the, the, the duties that you have as a law clerk is to play tennis every week with, <laughs> with the Chief Justice uh, and, and the other law clerks. And that in itself uh, made for some uh, interesting moments. Well, do you have a better forehand after that experience? <laughs> Definitely a better forehand. Yeah. The other thing Great. I learned is you really don't want to hit the chief justice of the United States with a tennis ball. <laughs> uh oh. Did that happen while you were playing with him? <laughs> it did happen, although fortunately I wasn't the one who struck the ball. <laughs> oh, great. Great. Uh, what was the biggest difference between clerking for Chief Justice Rehnquist and Judge Sirica, either in terms of style and personality or in terms of, you know, being on an appellate court versus the, the Supreme Court? Yeah, I think they style-wise, they they were similar in terms of their approach to, to judging. But I mean, I think that the biggest difference is just that the magnitude of the cases and the you know spotlight on the court's decisions, and also you know the the number of of judges slash slash justices involved in the process. So you know, working with two other judges on a court of appeals is completely different than working with you know eight other justices at the Supreme Court. Um, one sure. of the things that was different and you know really fabulous about clerking at the Supreme Court is, you know, all the, the, the justices and all the clerks are in the same building, which isn't true for, mm. you know, the, the circuit courts. And so being all together, you know, gives you the opportunity to just walk down the hall and talk to other clerks about cases and, you know, to meet the other justices. Sure. And, you know, that in itself um, was 
uh, a really great aspect of the Supreme Court clerkship. Sure. Now, other than Judge Sirica and Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, have you had any other mentors in your career? Yeah, I've been really fortunate in that respect. Um, when I left my clerkship with Chief Justice Rehnquist, I went to work for then non-judge John Roberts, mm. who was practicing before the court at that time. And that was a phenomenal experience working for him and learning uh, from him as a Supreme Court advocate. And then I, I had the opportunity to work with Ted Olson when he was Solicitor General. And then also when I went back out in private practice to work with Maureen Mahoney and, and you know, each of them I, I learned tremendously from and they all sort of served as role models for me. Great. Now, you mentioned the Solicitor General, and I understand you served at the Solicitor General's office twice in several different capacities. Uh, you served as an Assistant Solicitor General, as Principal Deputy Solicitor General, and then as the Solicitor General. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, those experiences? Sure. I mean, I, I think the Solicitor General's office is one of the real treasures of American government and certainly the executive branch. I mean, it's it's a relatively small office with about 20 lawyers who represent the United States before the Supreme Court, uh, led by the Solicitor General. But, you know, all of the, the lawyers in the office, um, from the assistants to the deputies to the SG, are, you know, contributing to that uh, in, in different ways. And mm. so it, it's a it's a great thrill to represent the United States and its officers, the president before the Supreme Court in any of those capacities. Um, and, and, you know, the office really has a remarkable degree of independence in determining what the positions of the executive ought to be before the court. And you know, being a part of that process, working with other agencies and officials to arrive at, you know, what the position ought to be in cases um, is a, is a, you know, incredibly interesting, important and uh, uh, process that, uh, you know, I was really privileged to be a part of. Sure. Do you have any particular experiences or memories that stand out from your time at the Solicitor General's office? I mean, I, I have so many, but one thing I would say is I was working in the office at the time of the 9-11 attacks, mm. uh, which, you know, personally hit the office because the, the Solicitor General Ted Olson's right. wife was on one of the planes. Right. And the president asked uh Ted Olson is SG to sort of take on responsibility for leading those cases, even in the, the district courts, you know, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And that led to, um, you know, a number of truly remarkable experiences, which included, you know, visits to Guantanamo Bay, um, uh, working with cases that, you know, eventually went all the way up to the Supreme Court in the Hamdi case, the Hamdan case, um, the you know Guantanamo Bay cases, sure. um, from the, the very first hearings in the district court where nobody, you know, really knew exactly how to treat this new category of cases and had to, you know, dust off old cases from World War II, you know, all the way to the Supreme Court where the court issued these, you know, truly momentous decisions. So that, that was a, a unique experience that I'll never forget. And you're now a partner at Latham and Watkins and chair of the firm's appellate practice. What's that experience been like uh, moving into private practice? 
It's great. Um, you know, working in private practice is different than being in the SG's office. For one thing, they don't come into your office and hand you Supreme Court cases. You've got to go out there and <laughs> find them the hard way. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, another aspect is, as I mentioned before, representing the United States is, is a true privilege and thrill for any lawyer. But the United States can be a, a fairly abstract client. Sure. And, you know, in private practice, you're representing you know, individuals or companies and, and often there's a, a much more, you know, direct relationship. So the ability to represent clients in that capacity to, to really feel the importance of the cases uh, to them and, and to go into court, you know, on their behalf is both, you know, very daunting uh, and very thrilling in a different way than, than being a lawyer in the SG's office is. So, so it's, it's, you know, I, I truly love my job. Great. How many cases have you argued before the Supreme Court now, Greg? So I've argued 46, which is about 46 more than I would have thought I would have argued in <laughs> law school. Um, but I was, you know, very privileged to do that. Are there any particular arguments or moments uh, from those arguments that stand out to you? You know, there's lots. And, you know, it it, 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 it may sound trite, but, you know, really every case is, is different. And, you know, the last case stands out as much as any of them. But what I would say is, um, the first case I, I argued as Solicitor General was a case called Winter versus NRDC, which was on behalf of the Navy. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll never forget that argument because it was my first as SG and the, the Secretary of the Navy and other yeah. high-ranking officials were in the audience. And so that was a that was a real special one. Um, I argued a, a couple of really interesting cases on behalf of the state of Florida, which involved the use of <laughs> Um, canine detection dogs sure. in 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 uh, various traffic stops, and those were really interesting. I argued them back to back one morning on a, on a Halloween day, which made for you know even more interesting <laughs> questions than you would expect in a Fourth Amendment case about dog sniffs. Um, sure. So that, those were a lot of fun as well. Now I know some advocates who have appeared on the show tell us they wear a lucky tie or they listen to a particular song. Or they have some particular tradition they follow before arguments. Uh, do you have any special uh, pre-argument rituals? So I've got a lucky watch, which is a, a watch that my uh, grandparents gave to my father and my father to me. So I'll, I'll wear that. Um, mm. And then, you know, other than that, my, my rituals uh, really consist of sort of um, going through the same scenario as I gear up for oral argument in terms of going through my you know, final list of questions and answers and, uh, you know, working on a few different exchanges. And mm -hmm. then, you know, maybe the most important for me is just sort of, you know, exercising, working out, getting uh, tired enough that I will be able to sleep the night before the argument, sure. which is, uh, you know, one of the important things that you, that you can control before an oral argument. Sure. Now, I know you recently argued two cases before the Supreme Court this past term, and those arguments were telephonic uh, because of the pandemic. How would you compare telephonic arguments to in-person arguments? They're a lot different. Uh, the dynamics are completely different. Uh, I think they're much more challenging in the sense that you cannot see the justices, you cannot engage with the justices in, in nonverbal ways and take nonverbal clues uh, as to, you know, how to answer a question, uh, when to stop in your answer, sure. and you know when to try to get help from other justices. Um, you know, I, I think in in arguing over a telephone, you sort of feel as though you're arguing uh, into the the void. Um, so in that respect, it, it's more challenging. 
Um, you know, on the other hand, in, in some ways, it it's a little bit, you know, easier and more enjoyable in that you don't tend to get into the sort of feeding frenzy where you've got justices sure. coming at you from all different sides at once, as you would in a in an oral argument before the, the court itself. And, you know, it's much more orderly. The justices are going one by one and, and sure. you know, they, they tend to give you a little bit more leeway in answering questions. And so that, that can make it more enjoyable. But, I, I you know, I certainly miss the, the give and take in person um, and looking forward to the day when we can all be back in the courtroom. Sure. Does the preparation differ uh, for the telephonic arguments than it does for the in-person arguments? And if so, uh, how? I think that the most important way it differs is just the, the format. I mean, in doing the moots for the telephonic arguments, you want to stick in the telephonic mode. And, and that in, it itself was was sort of a learning experience because at least for me, I had to sort of um, I, I found that I was uh, presenting an oral argument over a telephone was just different than than presenting an oral argument to, to people on a bench, even the, in the sure. court setting. So that was different. And then you, you want to be prepared for the sort of seriatim aspect of the, the questioning that can take you to you know all different topics, you know, from one justice to the next. Uh, so it really is uh, completely different. But I think once you've you've been through it, um, you know, you get accustomed to it to it and adapt. Do you hope there are any aspects of the telephonic arguments that the Supreme Court will keep once they move back to in-person arguments? Well, I love that all justices are asking questions, and and I certainly love that you know Justice Thomas is asking questions as well. He's been a very right. active part- participant, and his questions are fantastic. Right. So I, I hope that that will continue in in some form. You know, I I, I do think the justices have given the advocates a little bit more leeway to answer questions and. I think I've been a little bit more patient in that respect, and I, I don't. I wouldn't mind if, if that carries over, but you know, I, I would, um, you know, trade that aspect of it for you know getting back into the courtroom and being all in one place and sure. being able to connect uh, in person. Now, I've seen some advocates who have argued telephonically. They still have a, a, a courtroom sketch artist come and sketch them at their desk or their dining room table. Uh, did you have a sketch artist uh, sketch your arguments this term? I, I didn't have the, the sketch artist. No, I didn't. Uh, and uh, as part of that, I've noticed some advocates uh, have worn, uh, you know, either uh, more casual wear, <laughs> I guess, not a full suit and tie uh, to argue. Uh, so did you still wear your full suit and tie to argue uh, telephonically or did you uh, take a more casual approach? So I, I definitely was tempted to take a more casual approach as I, as I do in my regular work days these days. Uh, but, but I just couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I had to put on the, the tie and jacket and, uh, sure. um, you know, that, that just felt right. So I, I, I certainly did that for the arguments. Sure. Now, I know one of the cases you argued this term was an original jurisdiction uh, case. It involved a dispute between uh, the state of Florida and the state of Georgia. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about what an original jurisdiction case is? Sure. I mean, original jurisdiction cases are very unique and very important. I mean, the biggest difference is that they're filed directly in the Supreme Court. I mean, the sort of prototypical example is one state suing another state. Um, And so, you know, although the Supreme Court will typically appoint a special master to take evidence in the case, ultimately the Supreme Court itself and the justices are the fact finders. And so, Preparing for an argument in one of those cases um, is, you know, extraordinarily hard. I think 
even more challenging than the typical case because in the typical case you might get asked about the record but usually the argument's going to focus on you know legal issues and cases and precedents right. and that sort of thing in original jurisdiction case you really have to be prepared and, and are responsible to be able to answer any question about you know anything in the record and the case that I argued, and I had argued this case uh, twice before the court, uh, came up a five-week trial before a special master. So the record was extraordinarily <laughs> voluminous. voluminous. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, really sort of drilling down to the point where you knew the testimony, you knew the exhibits, um, you know, t- took a lot more um, preparation and time than, than, than even the typical Supreme Court case. Now, Greg, you're highlighted in Ross Guberman's book, Point Made, How to Write Like the Nation's Top Advocates. Uh, so no pressure, <laughs> but but what writing tips would you give to our listeners? So I don't have any magic formulas for you, Zach, but what I would say is I, I think making your writing clear and simple is really important. A lot of lawyers, you know, particularly when they get to the Supreme Court, want to make it sound really fancy and convoluted sure. and that just doesn't work. And then the other thing I would say is make your writing interesting. There's no reason why, you know, even a legal brief on an esoteric arcane issue can't be interesting. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that I had the privilege of working for John Roberts when he was practicing before the court. And one thing that he really impressed upon me is that the statement of the case, you know, really can be the most important part of a brief where you, you know, tell the story of the case and, you know, bring the reader in and really to the point where the reader is going to want to rule for your side even before he or she gets to the legal arguments. Now, the legal arguments still have to be good to get right. to the right result. But <laughs> but I think, you know, if you look at uh, the briefs that John Roberts filed, um, they told great stories uh, and they were fun to read. And there's no reason why you can't make a brief uh, interesting. And then the last thing I would say is for younger lawyers is go out and, you know, read briefs by practitioners whose writing you like and, you know, start with briefs filed by the SG's office because those are uniformly extremely well written. And then look at, you know, some more of the more notable practitioners and pick up tips, tips that way. A friend of the show, Lisa Blatt, has previously said uh, that she thinks uh, people who work in the SG's office and come out of the SG's office have a little bit of a a distinctive style uh, in writing briefs and cert petitions from those who have not. Uh, What do you think about that? I think that's right. Um, You know, one of the things about the practicing before the court is every brief filed in the Supreme Court has a different color. And the briefs filed by the United States are gray. Mm -hmm. And in some respects, that's that's fitting because the writing tends to be a little bit more um, uniform, even handed, you know, maybe a little bit less flashy, but just sort of thoroughly and fairly addressing the legal issues and arguments, um, which I think can be extremely effective. And so I, I think, you know, lawyers in the office tend to write in that fashion. You know, having said that, and I think you can see this from Lisa's writing as well, when they leave the office, their briefs tend to get <laughs> a little bit more um, flashy and evocative and, uh, you know, interesting. Um, sure. So I, I, I don't think people like Lisa are filing great briefs anymore. Uh, so you're saying the Solicitor General's briefs are a little bit more of just the facts exactly. <laughs> to a certain extent. Exactly. Now, in 2011, Chief Justice John Roberts appointed you to the Standing Committee on the Rules of Practice and Procedure of the Judicial Conference of the United States, and you served in this position until 2017, and this is the highest rulemaking body of the U.S. judicial system. 
Uh, what was that experience like? I mean, that was a phenomenal experience and, and, a, and a great privilege. And I'm grateful to the chief for, um, you know, I think one of the most unique things about it is that on that committee, lawyers from private practice were working with judges to sort of, you know, resolve issues about the interpretation of rules and improve the rules. And so, you know, usually we're on other sides of the bench, but in this, you know, forum, we were sort of working together and that was a really great experience to get to know some of the judges that that served on that committee and, and to work with them and get a better appreciation for how they see things on the other side of the bench. And then there's just, you know, no shortage of fascinating issues that come up, whether it's, you know, class actions, discovery, or as, as we dealt with towards the end of my tenure, the uh, the word limits on appellate briefs, which was you know, maybe the most controversial <laughs> issue we faced. Well, I know a lot of appellate courts right now are issuing new rules about what fonts <laughs> advocates right. can use. I know the D.C. Circuit recently came out uh, with some, some suggestions on that front. Uh, do you have any uh, font views, <laughs> Greg? <laughs> so, yeah, I know this is an issue of a great importance to many people. Um, you know, we tend to use old century school book, which, which is fine. Um, I, you know, I, I tend to be fairly adaptable in that sense, so I'm willing to b- abide by any rule there. Sure, sure. Uh, well, I, I know you know uh, it may not be of interest to all of our listeners, but I, uh, <laughs> I always find the font wars to be slightly fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and a final question we asked to all of our guests on the show, Greg, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? That's a great question. I mean, it, it's so tempting to say uh, John Marshall just because of everything that he did in his life and the impact he had on the court. But I think the person I would say is is Robert Jackson mm. um, because of his uh, tenure as SG. And, and he was someone who um, loved arguing before the court by all accounts, was a phenomenal oral advocate. And, you know, once described um, oral advocacy, but before the court in its most idealistic sense as a stonemason trying to build a cathedral. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think Jackson built cathedrals in his arguments. Um, I haven't, but I, I'd love to pick up some tips from him and, and to talk about, to talk with him about his experience um, on the court uh, as a justice, but also um, arguing before the court as Solicitor General. Well, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to to be on the show today. It was a a fantastic conversation, and uh, we'd love to have you back again in the future. So thank you for joining us. Thanks, Zach. I really appreciate it. All right, Zach. So I was thinking, you know, we've had a lot of cases these last few terms that have involved Indian tribes, McGirt, Cooley, uh, Yellen versus Confederated Tribes, which is still to come. And I got to thinking... Uh, about other times that the court has dealt with Indian tribal issues. So it's Indian tribal court trivia today. Are you ready? I'm, I'm as ready as I will be. So hit me with it, GC. All right. Well, the obvious place to start uh, when we're talking about the Supreme Court and Indian law is naturally Hollywood. <laughs> so a popular television show. I'm curious created... where this is going, GC. I'm curious <laughs> where this is going. Fair. There's a popular television show. I suppose we'll see just how popular it is by whether you know about it. Uh, that created an entire storyline about the jurisdictional issues of tribal police, like those raised by McGirt and Cooley. Do you know what show that is or was? I think I have an idea. Is it uh, currently streaming on Netflix by chance? 
It is, in fact. Well done, Zach. It is uh, Longmire. Yeah, yeah. So that was my guess. Uh, you know, not uh, not my cup of tea, but uh, I do know they have a lot of issues relating to uh, to jurisdiction between the local sheriff and the local tribal police. Yes, and in fact, the show does a very good job of uh, explaining and walking viewers through those issues. They're, they're real issues that come up. Uh, in fact, the show has done such a good job with uh, showcasing those legal issues. The American Bar Association even published an article about it. Well, I will say they may have done a good job uh, exploring tribal issues, but apparently the writers have never seen a real trial or heard of the Fourth Amendment. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but yes, it was a you know, very interesting show. All right. Next up. One of the court's arguably most famous cases involving Indian tribes is Worcester versus Georgia, 1832. In that case, Chief Justice John Marshall in dicta laid out the relationship between the tribal and federal governments. Do you know what the nature of that relationship is? Ooh, that's a tough one, GC. I'm going to guess... No, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? Okay. Uh, it, is a, it is the relationship between sovereign nations. Mm. This was actually a departure from another case just the year before, Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, where Chief Justice John Marshall had written for a majority holding that the tribes were not really foreign nations, so the court mm. didn't have original jurisdiction over claims between them and the states. Got it. All right. Well, another hard one is a follow-up then. This case uh, sparked one of the country's early constitutional crises. Do you know why? I'm going to guess, again, it has something to do with the the sovereign status of uh, tribal governments. That is true. Uh, so the case, this case struck down a Georgia law that purported to extend state control over tribal lands. Georgia, of course, was not happy about this decision because that's what the state was trying to do. And its officials and courts refused to comply with the Supreme Court's opinion. Andrew Jackson was on Georgia's side of this. He was similarly unhappy, said that he would not enforce it if federal assistance was requested. This is actually the case from which we get that famous Andrew Jackson quote. uh, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Mm. Eventually, the crisis fizzled out because of political events, specifically the nullification crisis where South Carolina threatened to secede. That forced Jackson to pressure Georgia into complying, which it eventually did. But a very uh, uh, interesting and thorny uh, set of issues was uh, sort of cascaded off of this decision. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Last stop, Zach. One of the sitting Supreme Court justices wrote a history of the Supreme Court and the Cherokee Nation while on the court. Who is it? I think it was Justice Breyer. That is correct. In 2000, he published an article in the Journal of Supreme Court History called The Cherokee Indians and the Supreme Court. I think I've actually come across that before, believe it or not. (laughs) Well, well done, Zach. Those were some hard trivia, so you you did well. I agree with that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And that's all we have for today. So thank you, everyone, for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. As always, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. 
case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.